against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good evening, church. Good to be back with you. Um, if you ha have happened to just walk in, let me remind you to text uh, the word hi to the number on the screen. Where is it? It's coming. Um, it'll be there. She'll find it. But when you text the word hi to the number, you'll find not only the Bible passage that you can interact with tonight, also you'll find my slide deck. I don't have all the slides, but I have the main slides, and you can take notes underneath each of the slides. You can even share with friends, take it home, think about it later, pray over it. Um, it's a great tool for your continual growth and also for you to let other people know about what God is doing in your life and in the life of our church. Uh, this series of sermons is a very special series of sermons that we've been going through. We're on week seven of the God is series. This is a series that you guys have helped us to craft. Uh, back in December, we asked uh, people of, the people of Crossbridge at all campuses, what has God taught you in 2018? People have said, you know, God has taught me uh, that he is a provider. He's taught me that he is present. And others, like Daniela, shared her story tonight, said, God taught me that he is a forgiving God. He taught me about forgiveness. And this is a very important topic uh, because we all screw up. We're all jacked up, messed up people, uh, including myself. Uh, my wife will tell you of how broken I am as a human being. And the real question that we must ask is, how do you get up after you screw up and you have more joy and power than you had before? Is that possible? And I want to tell you, yes. If people have wronged you, how are you able to forgive and find more joy in offering forgiveness and more power in your life? How do you do that? Well, by understanding the forgiveness of God. I want to encourage you tonight to say this. Look, if you have come in here tonight and you are well aware of how broken and screwed up you are like I am myself, uh, I want to tell you that, you know, God is not only a God of second chances, he is, he's a God of third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. All right, he is an all-loving, forgiving God. And when you come to understand his forgiveness and you're able to experience in your own life, man, there's a lot of joy and a lot of power that comes with that. So how do we 
understand God's forgiveness. In this passage, which is a psalm of David, we understand it in three ways, okay? Uh, through the gift of forgiveness. Let's look at the gift of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift from God. Uh, Number two, uh, the way to forgiveness, all right? How do you experience forgiveness in your life? There's a path that you must take and follow so that you receive this gift uh, or you you appropriate yourself this gift or activate this gift. And then lastly, uh, we'll talk about the cost of forgiveness. The gift that God gives you is a very costly gift, and I hope that you understand that tonight. Number one, let's look at the gift of forgiveness. Uh, By the way, I already alluded to that. This is a psalm by David. Uh, David is known by many as a godly man, a hero of faith, and uh, I don't know if you heard sermons before in the past or stories about David. David was known as a man after God's own heart. And we have this idea, therefore, of David as this, you know, godly hermit man, obviously, that, you know, is living in caves and seeking God. And he always, as a king, makes godly decisions for his people. That couldn't be furthest from the truth. That's not the story of David in the Bible. David is a jacked up, screwed up man. Uh, His story and his life story is a story of brokenness. Right? How many of you have ever wanted to sleep with someone in your office and you actually went on to kill that person's spouse so you can have that person? Well, that is David. Okay? This is who who David was. David, because of that, he had a messed up, screwed up family. His children raped one another, murdered one another. One of his sons, a son by the name of Absalom, uh, one time wanted to overthrow him as a king and kill him. Well, that son who he loved ended up dying in battle. So David's life is no model for any of us here tonight. And he starts off, he starts off this psalm because David, you know, knew something that most of us do not know. And this is why I think that David's, after all, a man after God's own heart. He starts off this psalm by saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, Every time that we get to the Bible and we come across this word blessed, I think that it's important that we understand what does the Bible mean when it says blessed is such and such person. You know, see, blessed in our culture is somebody that's accomplished, that's successful. Uh, Whenever we get a promotion or we, you know, find a loved one and or we get married or we have children, we post on our instant or or on our Instagram or social media, the hashtag, you know, underneath the picture, bless it, right? How many of you have done that? Come on, admit it. Admit it tonight. (laughs) There's some real honest people here and I appreciate that. Let's create an honest environment to talk about sin and forgiveness. Um, We do that. But that's not at all what the Bible means when it calls someone blessed. You know, a blessed person is a fulfilled person. It's a complete wellness of being idea, to be blessed. It's to be free. It's to be content. Now, what's interesting here is David, he says that the blessed person is the person who has experienced forgiveness. And therefore, the question is now, why is the person that has experienced the forgiveness of God a blessed person? person for two reasons. Number one, because his relationship with God has been repaired. His relationship with God has been repaired. How do you feel when you're at odds with someone? Let's say, you know, you're at odds with someone in the office or you're at odds with a family member or a spouse, right? 
it, it feels like undigested food. You know, you go to a bad Chinese restaurant, or let's say uh, you are lactose intolerant, and uh, you, you end up eating a lot of cheese for some reason, stupid reason. You know, why do lactose intolerant people love pizza? I have a daughter that's like that, but you still go ahead and do it anyways, right? And how does that food feel afterwards? Undigested food doesn't sit well in your stomach. You know, it's kind of like the the description here that we have in verse 3, that David says it feels like your, your bones are wasting away, right? You're dying on the inside. You're sick to the stomach. You know, every conversation is a weird and awkward conversation. Say you, you're at odds with your spouse. You go into the kitchen. You're going for the fridge. She's going for the, uh, you know, the oven, and you cross paths, and you're kind of like, okay, I'm just going go ahead. You know, that's that awkward type of environment, that vibe in the office when you are at odds with someone. And what the Bible says is the reason why we are discontent, the reason why we don't have wellness of being, the reason why we are not free, the reason why we feel inadequate when we hear about God or when we try to talk to God or we come to a place like this that everyone talks about God or when we listen to a song about God, the reason why it feels awkward, it feels like undigested food is because you are at odds with God. Sin, sin has put us at odds with God and it has robbed us of complete wellness of being. That's what the Bible teaches. You know, the word for sin here in, in, in the very first verse is a Hebrew word, the word pesha, which literally could be translated as rebellious self-assertion, rebellious self-assertion, the desire to exercise control and not come under anyone's control. I remember in seminary, I was reading St. Augustine's Confession, and he talks a little bit about that. He recalls an experience when he was a young man. He would go with his friends to someone's orchard, and they would steal these, these pears, you know, from uh, this neighbor. And uh, he kept on repeating that act with friends, and he reflects upon that experience later after becoming a Christian, and he says, why did I actually steal pears? I don't like pears in the first place, right? But why did I do it? Because there's a law that says do not steal, Right? See, we have this desire to break things, to burn things, to destroy things, to not submit to any other authority except for our own. Sin is rebellious self-assertion. See, sin breaks, sin destroys. There's a quote in the cover of your bulletin by Francis Pufford. He uh, is a Christian writer, and he defines sin like this. Sin is the human propensity to screw things up. In fact, let me just tell you, he does not use the word screw up in his original writings. Let me just put it that way. Uh, because we're talking about, what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. It's our active inclination to break stuff, stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch, all right? If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you, you give them like pretty nice, neat little toys, and all of a sudden, they just throw it somewhere and they crash it and break it. You're like, why did you do that? Well, because they're sinners like you. 
<laughs> sin is rebellious self-assertion. That's why we love violence. That's why we love to destroy and break things. And that applies to all areas of life. But here's the good news in this psalm here, and David acknowledges that. And that is the fact that, you know, if sin lives so deeply within us that uh, gives us this propensity for destruction in life. You know, God is a God that offers a means to repair all that is broken, starting with our relationship with him. And he does that through forgiveness. See, that's why a forgiven person is a blessed person, because God has provided a way to repair that broken relationship between the sinner and himself. But here's the second thing. Here's the second reason. I said that there were two, right? Why uh, the forgiven person, the one who has experienced God's forgiveness, is a blessed person. It's not only because he has experienced God repairing the broken relationship between him and, and God through forgiveness, but because of that, now he is free to live his authentic self because he has been forgiven. He is free to live his authentic self. We live in a culture that deeply values freedom and authenticity, and the only way that you can truly live out your authentic self is if you experience God's forgiveness. You know, look at uh, verse 1 still, part B of verse 1. The first thing that he said is, as blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The second thing he says is, and whose sin is covered. Whose sin is covered. The word covering appears here in verse 1, and it appears in verse 5. And it is, if, you know, if you read any biblical scholar, any biblical scholar will tell you that this is a reference to Genesis chapter 3. The very first book of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, what do you have? You have God creating all things, including Adam and Eve, humanity, and everything working properly. You know, a beautiful, glossy world, like, right, like a beautiful screen of an iPhone X. God created everything perfect. Everything was functioning and firing all cylinders. And then in chapter 3, you have the fall, where Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God. They rebelled against God. You, you literally see this rebellious self-assertion and the step that they take away from God. And because of that, everything, everything unravels. And, and now, for the very first time, you know, they feel naked and ashamed of being naked. Now, they had been naked their whole lives they were among animals and plants and, you know, with each other, and they were naked. All right, take that picture out of your head right now, okay? But now, for the very first time, after their sin, their deliberate sin against God, they are ashamed of the fact that they're naked. And what do they do? They go on to a fig tree, and they grab some fig leaves, and they sew clothes for themselves. Now, I was in the Middle East a couple of years ago, and there's some fig leaves that are like really big, but they're still not good for covering. They're, they're not functional uh, as clothes. And God looks at that, right, trying to repair the problem with spit and tape. And he says, hey, this doesn't work. God ends up killing them an animal and sewing leather clothes for them. They were wearing leather clothes, super fashionable, right in that very beginning. God took care of the problem 
Because that's what sin does to us. Sin exposes us, right? And our natural response since that very first moment in the garden, when they feel naked, when they were naked, and now now they were ashamed, uh, since then we have repeated that action and covering ourselves so that others are not able to see our true self. See, the self that we see on social media is not your true self. You, don't, you know that, and I know that about you. That is not your true self. That's the edited version of yourself. That is not your true self. See, the guy that you meet at a bar or the girl you meet at a party, that first conversation that you have with them, you're not seeing their true self. Let me just tell you that, all right? Oh, I just met this real transparent person, just real vulnerable. That is not their true self. We're all covering up. And no one said it better than French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre. How many of you uh, have ever heard the keyhole illustration that Sartre says? And, and, and to illustrate this point, he, he, he talks about this person who is in a room by himself, and he is looking through a keyhole at this party that's taking place. He's observing the people. The people can't see him. And he's super entertained because everyone's exposed but himself. He's like, oh, look at how these people are talking to one another. Oh, that guy's making a move over there. I know what he's doing. So he's super entertained until he notices that there's a door behind him with a keyhole and someone looking through. And he says, this is the human condition. It is the human condition. And that's why we cover. We cover with degrees. We cover with position and power and titles. We cover with family names. We cover on social media. That's how we cover ourselves. But think about this. If you understand God's forgiveness, if you have experienced God's forgiveness, now here is a being that you cannot hide from. He knows every single move of yours. He knows every single aspect of your life story. He was there when you did it all. He knows it all. You can't hide from him. And if you know that that being that knows everything about you, that not even your best friends know about you, still loves you the same, that frees you as a person, doesn't it? It should. And now you are able to live out your authentic self. You can uncover yourself because you've been covered by God. You see what I'm saying? See, you're not now worried about whether people are going to approve or disapprove of you if you share with them your flaws and your story and your mistakes and your shortcomings because you're already loved and approved by the most important being in the universe, so who cares? You are now free to live out your authentic self. A forgiven person has received the gift and he is blessed, she is blessed because the relationship with God has been repaired and therefore, they're free to live their authentic self. Number two, here's another way to understand God's forgiveness. Not only to see forgiveness as a gift, but to understand the way to forgiveness. How do you activate this forgiveness that God gives to us as a gift? The clue is obviously in verse 5, part B of, of verse 5. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And then part B, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. He says, the way in which you activate 
this life of complete well-being, this quality of life, and therefore you experience God's forgiveness is through confession. It's perfectly in line with other passages of the Bible. The Bible talks about that a lot. So if you go, for, for instance, to 1 John 1, verse 9, where John addresses the early church. And he writes, in, and, and that's the first letter of three that he writes. He says, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I underline purposely there the word confess as well as the word forgive because it's through confession that God's forgiveness is activated in our lives, that this gift is experienced, that this gift is unpacked and unwrapped is when you confess. And there's four things that I want to talk to you about tonight, about confession tonight. Uh, the first one is, as you confess, you say, oh, I'm going to take this posture of confession. I'm going to practice confession in my life. And by the way, it's important that you do that on a daily basis because you sin on a daily basis. Uh, just saying. Um, but as you confess, you must learn to confess what's true guilt, not what's false guilt. And verse 5 the very first part of verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin, not to my spouse, not to my friends, uh, not to my priest even, but I acknowledge my sin to you. See, there's a lot of guilt that we carry that's not necessarily true guilt. It is false guilt. Guilt that is socially conditioned, guilt that is emotionally conditioned. And what I tell people is this, if someone throws you a guilt ball, you're not obligated to catch it, Okay. Let it bounce. Let it bounce. Someone throws you a guilt ball. What did you learn tonight? Let it bounce. Okay, let that ball bounce. So let me give you an example of that. You kind of heard that in uh, Daniela's story. So if, if, if your parents, for instance, have a certain expectation of you, and they make you feel guilty for not meeting that expectation, they say to you, and they remind you, over Thanksgiving meals and Christmas meals, they say, well, I put all this money on your education, and you still haven't gotten a real job. <laughs> or, they, or they say this, wow, you're in your mid-30s already, huh? Isn't there anyone interesting? Your workspace, church, neighborhood. Come on, you live in Miami. There's a lot of single people there, aren't there? That is false Guilt, right? If you're carrying that, you're feeling guilty, oh, I haven't met my parents' expectations, I feel so bad about myself, that is false guilt. But if you resent your parents, if you hate on your parents, if you dishonor now your parents because they have treated you that way, now that is true guilt. See, because now in the Bible, in the, one of the Ten Commandments says, honor your father and mother. The Bible doesn't command you to love your parents, but the Bible says you must honor your parents. And when you begin to gossip about your parents and carry resentment about your parents, now there's true guilt that needs to be confessed. Now, so how do I know? Well, you need a straight edge. You need a straight edge to determine what is false guilt and what is true guilt. See, because people change. Society changes on their opinions of what's right and wrong. Culture changes. But you know what never changes? 
God and the word of God. So you need a straight edge to distinguish that which is true guilt from false guilt. No wonder why people that do not have a relationship with God have a super hard time with what we're talking about here. There's no straight edge in their lives. They're like the wind blowing in every single direction. So uh, distinguish between uh, true guilt and false guilt and confess only what's true guilt, not false guilt. But then secondly, you must distinguish between what's true repentance and what's false repentance. Sometimes when we repent or when we confess, it's not coming from the right place. Uh, a lot of people confess and repent. See, repentance is the, uh, the, uh, ought to be the posture and confession, the action that reflects that posture, that inward posture. See, there are many of us that confess and repent for the, the uh, inconvenience that our sin has caused us and not because sin is bad, because we know that sin offends God. We don't see the iniquity of sin. See what he says in, in verse 5 at the very end? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. These two words, aren't they the same? Well, what he was trying to get across here is that you must see your sin as iniquity, as something bad, it's not as inconvenient. And then he gives us a picture to illustrate that, and that is in verse 9. Of a stubborn mule or a stubborn horse. Think about a stubborn mule or a stubborn horse. Have you ever ridden a horse before? Or a mule? You're riding a mule or a horse, right? And you want to go in this direction, but the mule or the horse wants to go in that direction. And you're, 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 you start to pull the bridle towards the direction that you want the mule to go, but the mule, you know, keeps, <laughs> I want to eat over here, man. And if the mule insists, what do you do? You kick it or you slap it, and then the mule says, oh, I really want to eat, but this is so inconvenient, caused so much pain, I'm going to go where he wants me to go, right? The pain causes the mule to go in that direction, even though on the inside, the mule wants to go in the opposite direction. And what God is saying is, don't be like the mule that I have to inflict pain over and over again so that you will respond. And, and, it, and, and this is an indication of some of us. If that's your experience, that God is leading you constantly through pain, and you're repenting and confessing, is because your repentance is not coming from the right place. It may be false repentance. You see the inconvenience of your sin, not the iniquity of your sin. Let me give you another example here. Uh, I'll give you actually two more examples. One is with, uh, you know, children. Uh, you have children, and sometimes they offend others, especially when they get to, to the teenage years. They offend others. And you have to come to them and you say, hey, listen, I want you to go to that person that you have offended, and I want you to say I'm sorry. Oh, but I hate that person. You don't know what they have done to me. Well, I want you because we value this in our home. I want you to say I'm sorry because it doesn't justify your behavior. I'm not going to do it. Okay, well, I'm going to take your iPhone for two days. All right, well, then I'll do it. You see what I'm saying? And they'll go and they'll confess and repent, and I'll still take it regardless. But the confession and the repentance sees the inconvenience that the sin has caused and not the iniquity of the sin. 
I see that with couples all the time in my office. They come into my office, and, uh, you know, this is a common narrative. The wife says, I'm going to leave him because he never pays attention to me or the kids or da 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 comes up with a big list. And he says, well, but I told her that I was going to change. Don't leave me. Give me a chance. I will change. And, you know, they'll leave that encounter, and he will change for about three months. <laughs> and he'll go back to his old ways, and then they're back in the office again. And she says, now, this time I'm really leaving him. What has happened? He has seen the inconvenience that his sin has caused him and said, I will change. But he hasn't seen the iniquity of his sin. See, and that's us. So you, may, you must make that distinction. Don't be like the mule. That's the other thing that you must learn. First, let it bounce. And then secondly, pastor said that I shouldn't be like the mule. Um, <laughs> thirdly, when it, when it comes to confession. Thirdly, when it comes to confession, uh, you must change perspectives. The word to confess in the Greek, and it's the same meaning in Hebrew. This passage is originally written in Hebrew, but it's the same meaning. It's the word homologeo. Homo means the same. Logeo, discourse, word. And so when you confess a sin that you have committed against someone or which is primarily against God, you must put yourself in the shoes of the person that you have wronged. It's very common to hear, look, if I offended you, I don't know, I wasn't trying to offend you, but if I offended you, will you please forgive me? See, you haven't done the work of understanding how that person must have felt, where they come from. You haven't done the work if that's how you are confessing. God, some of us are like this. At the end of the day, God, I don't know what I've done, how I've sinned, but whatever I've done, forgive me, please. All right? You have not put yourself in God's shoes. You must have homologeo. must be the same discourse, the same perspective on things. You must change. Be willing to change your perspective. And lastly, you must own your sin. I did it. Yes, I did it. But I did it because you made me do it. Or you said that or you did that. What you're doing is blame shifting. Let me tell you something. People are not responsible for your sin. Guess who's responsible for your sin? You are responsible for your sin. And when he says here, I covered my sin no more, at the very least what he's saying is I've covered my, I'm not going to cover my tail, right? And I'm going to accept all the consequences. I'm going to own up to it. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And it's always going to be with no buts. Okay? Every confession with no buts. That's the third thing that you could tell people you learn from your pastor. With no buts. Um, now, that leads us to the last point, which is the cost of forgiveness. Understanding the costliness of forgiveness. And this is the key point, because it's only when you understand the costliness of forgiveness that you are able to experience forgiveness and to seek forgiveness. It's when you understand that it's costly. I actually even heard Jordan Peterson this week saying that you never receive anything for free. Uh, everything that comes to you has a certain cost 
attached to it. And it's a beautiful thing to uh, envision or to be reminded tonight that God's forgiveness to us is free. But the freeness, the freeness of God's forgiveness to us does not mean that it comes to us for free. Someone had to pay the cost because forgiveness always means assuming the debt yourself. So if you go to my house and you sit on a piece of furniture and you break that piece of furniture, I can say to you, well, too bad. On Monday, please send me on Venmo $250 so that I can repair for this chair. Or I could say, don't worry about it. And what I mean by that when I say, don't worry about it, it's okay. I'm going to pay to repair that chair that you broke. And it's the case in, in the context of relationships and any time that you're offended, when you extend forgiveness, you are saying to the person, I am willing to bear the cost for this offense. I am not going to make you pay because that's vengeance, but I'm going to take upon the cost myself. And this is exactly what this text alludes to when uh, it tells us that God covers our sin. How can God cover our sin? See, hundreds of years later, here comes Jesus, God in the flesh, also 100% human, lives a perfect life, treats everybody with love and compassion and truth, does nothing wrong against anyone. And how does his life end? His, not, his life is not blessed as a result of that. His life is shred to pieces. And on the cross, the ultimate picture of the Son of God on the cross is what? The sinless Son of God is stripped naked so that we in our sins could be covered. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. That's what the Bible tells us. The only reason why God can cover you in your sins was because Jesus was uncovered for you. And when you understand that Jesus was stripped naked so that you could be covered with his righteousness, you're now free to uncover before others. Uncover your life because you have been forever covered in Jesus Christ. Your past sins, your present sins, and all your future sins have been covered through Jesus, the blood of Christ. That's why John the Baptist, when he looks at Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, and, and when you get this, when you understand this, you begin to find in God's forgiveness joy. How, how, does, the, uh, how does the psalm end? The psalm ends on a positive note. The last verse is, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all the upright in heart. This is a psalm about sin and a psalm about forgiveness of someone that's confessing to God horrible things that he has done. And yet the psalm ends with joy. Why? Because God's forgiveness to you produces joy in you. Right? In Romans 2, we read that it's God's mercy and God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not God's judgment that leads us to repentance. God doesn't bring the hammer down. God doesn't threaten to take away our iPhones, all right? That would be horrible. Say, so you don't fix your life. I'm going to take the iPhone permanently from the face of the earth. That would, have been a, that would be a tragedy. I would say to God, God, now we can't even follow the sermon because... <laughs> but it's not God's judgment 
and severity that leads us to repentance, it's God's kindness and God's mercy that leads us to repentance. And that's why in, uh, in verse 10 he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Hmm. My prayer to you tonight is that you would understand the costliness of God's forgiveness. And God's forgiveness to you would create, would generate joy in you. The reason why we live miserable lives is because we forfeit the grace that exists in the mercy and the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. May you receive that tonight. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for Jesus and for the forgiveness that comes to us through him. Father, it's not your severity, it's not your judgment, it's not your threats that leads us to repentance. But it's because we know that our relationship is not on the line, even if we do not change. Father, it's your grace, it's your kindness, it's your mercy ultimately demonstrated on the cross that leads us to forgiveness. And Father, I pray that out of that, we would come to your table tonight and feast and drink. That you are a loving and forgiving God. We are surrounded by your steadfast love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.